Hey friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, speaker, and Forbes blogger, and I created the U-Turn Podcast because, let's face it, every now and again, we realize that we're living life on autopilot, and it's time to wake up and make that U-Turn in your life. So prepare to go deep with some of the most transformational people I know, here to help you grow and upgrade your mindset, whether it's in work or love. Also, be sure to stick around for the end of every episode where I'm going to reflect on the conversation and offer actionable coaching insights to have a real impact on your life. In the meantime, we've opened up access to three free e-courses on uturnpodcast.com. So head on over there if you want to land a new job you love, find your purpose, or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you got to do is head on over to uturnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest. Far more truthful and far more powerful. Rather than choosing goals based on your personality, it's a lot more powerful to, you know, base your personality on the goals that you have, which is essentially what your coach was saying. Like, who, what do you want and who's the person you have to be to get that? So like, that's like the whole be, do, have concept where it's like, you know, who do you have to be, which is probably different than who you've been in order to like have what you want. So your personality should be based on your goals rather than having your goals be based on your current and very like temporary personality. Hey friends, I've got such a treat for you. Uh, It's not every day that I get to re-interview one of my favorite podcast guests and one of my friends. And that is why I wanted to bring Benjamin Hardy back on to the U-Turn podcast because he was our first episode with his book called Willpower Doesn't Work. And now he is, of course, on to his next book, as true writers always are, which is all about why and how your personality isn't permanent. And so Dr. Hardy over here is an organizational psychologist, best-selling author. His blogs have been read by literally over 100 million people. So just a little bit of impact for you. And I wanted to talk to him about all of the different myths of the personality that have really captured pop culture. And he talks about this in his book. So before we get into all the goods, uh, Ben, thank you so much for being back on here with me. Finally. So good. Yes. I remember coming to, I think it's LA, right. And just hanging out with you and your assistant and we were hanging out at this like cool spot. We, (laughs) yeah, very, very much good fond memories with you. Yeah, you too. And it's been really interesting because I think when you start a business, you know, and you're in it for years and years and years, you, I always used to wonder like, how do all of these business people know each other when I would come into business groups, you know, or something. And it's like, I totally see now it's like, we start at one part of our journey and we just capture it and continue, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, so what, what inspired the personality isn't permanent? Because when I last spoke to you on the podcast, you were all about how willpower doesn't work. And can you give everybody just a little context about what willpower doesn't work is about and why that kind of inspired you to move on to personalities and permanent? Yeah. Well, what's kind of funny. So there's a quote, actually, it's kind of a a fun quote that was also inspirational to writing this second book. It's from Elaine de Button. He's a British philosopher, but he said, anyone who isn't embarrassed by who they were 12 months ago didn't learn enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just kind of, I like that because it's like, if you're not you know, if you can't see a big, you know, if you can't see obviously distance from where you were a year ago, maybe you didn't, 
maybe didn't do enough. But honestly, when I go back and I read Willpower Doesn't Work, the, the Benjamin Hardy that you're speaking to right now wouldn't have written that book. Not that I don't like the book, not that I don't think a lot of it is really useful and valuable, but I'm not the same person that wrote Willpower Doesn't Work Out. That was three years ago. And so it's, it's kind of fun. That's kind of one of the fun aspects of doing creative work. And it's also, I think, one of the reasons why people don't do it is because they know that they're probably going to do something that might not be right. And actually, that was one of the things that stopped me from blogging for a while, was I was afraid of writing things that would turn out to be wrong. Um, now, I just think that that's kind of a fun part of the process is going back and reading old stuff. Not that I think willpower doesn't work is wrong, but sometimes I'll read like even old blog posts and I'll just be like, wow, that's like not how I would think it anymore. So willpower doesn't work is really a book about environment. Like it's a big explanation of like why willpower is the worst way to try to change your life and about how to create environments to avoid the, the wasteful use of willpower and also how to put yourself in situations where you rise to the occasion. Like just as an example, me and my wife becoming foster parents of three kids, like in that situation, we had to figure out what the heck to do and we had to rise to the occasion. And like I, that book's kind of about engineering situations that, that kind of like force the best out of you. Like even just putting yourself like in environments like masterminds, like where people like I can meet people like you, <laughs> like, so it's just a book about context and about how we as a Western culture focus too, too much on ourself. We focus on content, not context. And then I, I guess that's a huge part of personality and permanent as well. What willpower doesn't work isn't really what led me to writing um, personality and permanent. Personality and permanent is much, much, it's, it's, willpower doesn't work is more of like a behavior design book, kind of how to be effective. Whereas willpower, whereas personality is so much more like, here's why you are the way you are and here's how to change it. Okay. And you know, it's funny what you were saying because one of the biggest moments of confusion for me when I had like epic success and massive failure as well in my business was feeling like something was off. And I think a lot of people don't even realize that that's what's going on for them. How you were talking about, you're not really the same person who wrote willpower doesn't work. It's like, you know, another way of saying it's like with every new belief we have about the world, if it's a big enough belief, it's like that old version of us died. And the way that that old person was doing things doesn't match the way we're going to do things now because we believe something different about life or about our relationship or, and it makes us act differently. And so it's so interesting because there've been so many moments in my life, Ben, where I'm like, why isn't something working for me anymore? Why is that business that used to feel like the most comfortable pair of jeans not fitting me anymore? And it's like, oh yeah, that person of me in that version of me doesn't exist anymore. So I love that you pointed that out. Such a good way to start this conversation. And I know you talked about personality tests and I'm so sad that you have this opinion on it because I trust your judgment and it's like killing me. I love personality tests. I find them. I love the Enneagram. I love Myers-Briggs. So I would love for you to just shed some light and research on the personality tests and what do you believe about them to be true? Yes, this, this, um, you're not the only person. It's very millennial ish thing to love these things. I being a millennial as well, but so that was one of the most surprised, you know, so this is not why I wrote the book, but I definitely obviously went hit, went deep into it. And I think once I kind of explain a few things, you might be like, huh, you might not fully agree and that's okay. But Anyways, one of the things that I thought was interesting in going through my PhD program, and I, I got my PhD in organizational psychology, and one of the fundamental things that we do is what's called psychometrics, which is basically test development and validation. 
And I was always surprised because in my undergrad, I never learned this. I never actually like learned the deep dive into like how to be a psychologist. I kind of just like learned like the basics. But all of my professors, when they were explaining test development, were like, you know, it's important to realize that tests like Myers and Briggs are not valid scientific tests. Like, and if you want to actually understand this better, like my um, Adam Grant, who is a really cool psychologist, he's ex- like, look, honestly, Google Adam Grant Myers Briggs. He explains a lot, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll build off of what he said, and also what others have said. He explains why these tests tests are not scientific. Like the questions that are asked in these tests are not actually like relevant, valid questions. Like they're you're you're being asked like very random questions that 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 are assumed to be correlated or or within the same category. So like in order for a test to be, and this is honestly not even the most interesting part. I'm just going to explain very like the brief science on why they're not useful, but I'm also going to explain why they're actually not good for your mental health. But in order for a test to be like actually scientific and to like meet the rigors of like a, an actual scientific test, it has to be valid, meaning it's like studying what it says it's studying. And it has to be reliable, meaning like it shows the same results consistently. And like the research is really clear that these types of tests do not, are they're not valid nor are they reliable. Like, it, you know, if you, if you took the test, Ashley, if you took the Enneagram five years ago, and if you took it again today, your scores would be different. Um, and, Actually, I did that, and it was really different. It yeah, and there's nothing different. wrong with that. It's just an yeah. evidence that the test isn't going to find the same thing twice. And there's a lot of reasons. And that's actually, in my opinion, a great thing. But And so obviously, you shouldn't overly hold too tight to whatever score you get, knowing the fact that it's going to change. You know, And so that, that, that's actually one of the big problems, is that you get a score... And you think that that's like the real you. And then then it can lead, obviously, to a fixed mindset where you overly attach to a label. And then that label becomes your mindset or it becomes your worldview. So like labels create tunnel vision. Um, so in, like, in psychology, we call it selective attention. Um, but uh, there's a Harvard, Harvard um, psychologist. Her name is Ellen Langer. I freaking love her work. You would love her work. She wrote two books that must be read. Um, one's called Mindfulness. The other one's called Counterclockwise. Um, Mm -hmm. she's been, she's been at this for a long time. They call her the queen of mindfulness, but anyways, what she has found abundantly is that when you overly assume a label and this could be anything, actually what the research shows is that for therapists, as an example, the therapist can have diagnoses for themselves to guide the therapy, but they should never give the diagnosis to the client because then the client overly adopts the, the label and then it influences themselves and their worldview. Like, so Stephen Covey said, we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. And so, and so what Langer found is, is that when you have a label, you become very mindless to all of the times when the label is not true. So like the depressed person thinks that they're always depressed when in reality, there's many times throughout the day when they're not. And so these labels or really just personality tests in general, they ignore context uh, and then they lead to a fixed mindset. And then what people do is, is they then set goals to, to confirm the label rather than choosing what they would ultimately want. Mm-hmm. You know, this reminds me a lot of um, almost like relationship dynamics and how like maybe a boyfriend and a girlfriend have an issue. And it's like this idea of selective attention. It's like only noticing the things that you decided they are. Is it sa- is this the same kind of concept? Yes. Oh my gosh, you're so right. I mean, it, you do it with like a relationship. You can do it with kids. Um, like, I mean, I've done it with my kids where you become very mindless to like the changes that are under, that they're undergoing. And you're just focused on like some perspective you had of them in the past and you don't let them change because of your, yeah, 
yeah, you're in an, in a way, what you're really saying is like by keeping these labels, you, you are kind of taking part and holding them hostage to who they used to be. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's pretty gnarly. Um, and honestly, there's some really, really cool research on identity these days. Talk, you know, so like Daniel Gilbert and I recommend this Ted talk, but he's, he wrote a book called stumbling on happiness. He's also a Harvard psychologist, but he wrote, he, he did a Ted talk highly recommended. It's called the psychology of your future self. It's like a seven minute Ted talk, very worth it, but it shows kind of personality development over time. And like first, first thing he asks people in his research is, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? <laughs> so I, I guess I'll, I guess I'll ask you that question. Ask, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? Oh my gosh. I think I was like fumbling and bumbling around Washington DC trying to get a job or something. <laughs> well, so what's so funny if you think about it. So personality in a lot of ways is, is what you prefer. It's your preferences. It's your focus. In a lot of ways, it's what you're willing to tolerate. Um, so like, if you think about what you prefer now versus what you prefer then, if you think about what you're focused on now versus what you were focused on then, if you think about what you care about, like what you prioritize, like what matters to you, maybe some things are similar, but like chances are like how you use your time, like even how you show up in relationships is probably different. Um, also like there's probably things that you're just not willing to do anymore that like you would have gladly spent all your time on before. <laughs> like, um, yeah. and so like, it's funny because Gilbert will ask people this question, you know, like, it's obvious to people that they've made big change in the past um, versus their current self. And, but like when you ask them, like, do you think you're going to, like, how different do you think you're going to be in 10 years from now? What people generally do is that they downplay it. Like, and what they think that who they are currently is kind of the evolved version of themselves. And so what Gilbert says is, is that human beings are, are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. And mm. the reason they think they're finished is because remembering the past is a lot easier than imagining the future. And so people don't take the time to overly, they don't, they don't take the time to conceptualize who their future self is. They also don't realize that their future self is not them. Like your future self is not you, but like they're going to be in a different situation. They're going to have different goals, different perspectives. And so the smartest thing to do is to not hold your current identity and your current views so tight um, because your current identity is not who you're going to be in the future. And if you're intentional, it's really not who you're going to be. And so you don't need to overly overly own your current self. Mm, mm -hmm. And I also, I, I'm kind of curious, like, what do you think it is about us as people that makes us want to have these identities so much? Do you know what I mean? Like what? Well, identity is crucial. Yeah. Go ahead. That's an amazing yeah. question. No, yeah. Because I feel like, um, I had a, uh, a mentor years ago. She's kind of into shamanism and she had me fill in the blank and the, the blank was, and I, I think you'll enjoy this one. If you haven't seen this one before, she said, I am the one who, and she just said, fill in the blank. And I was like, I'm the one who gets things done on time. I'm the one who shows up on time. I'm the one who like works really quickly. I'm the one who makes dinner. Like it was so many identities on my, in my work life, in my, my relationship, in my family. Like there were so many things that I'm the one who, and it's interesting because yeah, I don't know. It's like you talk a little bit and I want to ask you a lot about how uh, trauma freezes personality. So tell me a little bit about identity and then if we can kind of go into like how trauma might freeze that. Oh yeah. Well, so you have to realize identity is super important. Like without identity, it's really hard to even understand yourself or the world. Like you see yourself through the lens of your identity. You see the world, you know, not as it is, but as you are, you see the past through the perspective of your current identity. And so identity is crucial and it's something that 
could and should be consciously chosen in a similar way as the exercise that you were just going through, you know, like actually thinking about, it's really powerful to really conceptualize who you genuinely want to be. Like who is your future self? Who does the, who is the, by actually detailing that out, you actually can get a clear snapshot of the identity that you, you can have now because then your future self becomes the metric that you then measure yourself against. But tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean? Like that your future self becomes the metric. Tell me a little more. Well, if you, if you don't know who you want to be, then it's really hard to even be that person. Now you're just going to essentially match your social group, right? Like if you haven't clarified who you want to be, what you want to stand for, like what you want to do. And obviously that will change as you develop more perspectives. But right now, if you think of, if you don't take the time to think about who you want to be or who you, who you are, (laughs) and I think that both of those are kind of the exact same thing, then it's kind of like Alice in Wonderland. Like it really doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter who you're around. You're just going to be a chameleon to your environment. Like, and so you can't proactively create an environment. You can't live intentionally and you can't live consciously. You'll only be unconscious if you have no perspective of what, where you want to go. <laughs> and so it's, it's really important for decision-making is what the research is. So there's two things. It's, it's fundamental to decision-making to know where those decisions are going. And so you have to have a future self clarified in order to make high quality decisions here and now. But also, what was that? Well, no, that just makes sense to me. Like, I was just like, huh, because the thing is, it's like, if we don't have, you know, and we always hear it as entrepreneurs, if you don't have a vision of where you're headed, you're headed nowhere. You know what I mean? Or like, you're, you're not living life, life is living you. And it makes sense now. It's like, how do you set any goals for your life or become anyone if you don't have that vision of who you're going to be? Yeah. Yeah. Identity is the first place. Identity is the starting point, then goals, you know, and then obviously like choosing, you know, and so... Yeah, I mean, one of their interesting that they found, you know, and then I'll explain why, you know, why people want an identity and obviously why personality tests are really, you know, fast food way of getting one. But um, like the other idea is, is deliberate practice. Have you ever heard of deliberate practice? Mm-mm, tell me. So, yeah. So in like performance psychology, and there's a really good book called Peak on the subject. You've definitely heard of the 10,000 hour rule, right? By Malcolm Gladwell. So he kind of stole that idea from the research on deliberate practice. And basically what it is, is the idea that in order to become world-class at anything, you know, and the researcher was, um, I think it was like Eric Anderson. Um, he studied this for decades. You know, he studied like, you know, Olympians, world-class pianists, and just any, you know, anyone who's brilliant at what they do. And he basically found that they engaged in a certain type of practice for thousands of hours to become like the best in the world at what they did. But deliberate practice is very different from like routine doing something routinely. Like, you know, think about you going to the gym, for example. Like if you went to the gym every single day and did, did, did the same workout every day for years, no goal, just you just kind of went, you'd maintain, potentially even get worse. Deliberate practices, like you have to, what what the research shows, and it, this is also true of motivation as well, but like you have to have a clear future self in mind in order to, to engage in the type of learning or practice or process that would transform you into something specific. Like the goal shapes the process. And also mm-hmm. like the, the clarity of the goal and then obviously the intensity of the process is what's going to get you there. Like if you don't have a goal, then you can't engage in a meaningful process. And so it's it's essential to have a future self in mind in order to actually go through the learning and, and, you know, educational or what, you know, what you would call practice to become that person. Um, so the goal you have, yeah, the goal you have shapes your process. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and have you heard, um, have I talked to you about Steve Chandler, that coach in Arizona by chance, Ben? No. He talks about like, he's, he's an incredible 
coach. I feel like you would be into his stuff. And I remember uh, doing a little bit of coaching with him and I had asked, I told him about some sort of goal I had, and I think I'm actually doing it now. I think it was like doing spokesperson stuff or something. And I was like, so here's the steps I need to take. And that's kind of the level that I was planning on. And he, he didn't interrupt me, but like, as soon as I was done talking, I could tell he had a lot to say. And he said, well, who do you have to be? Like, what would your identity have to be? What kind of personality would you have to have to go be that person that, that is creating the results you want? And it changed the way that I viewed my goals. You know what I mean? Because he was coming from questions about identity. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that sort of approach. I love, I, I think that that's brilliant. You know, so it, it reminds me of a few things. So like one is one of the core premises of this book is that, and, and there's a lot of interesting myths. Like one of the myths is obviously that like your personality is something that's innate and unchangeable. Therefore you must discover it. And obviously that's why people want personality tests because they think that they can discover this thing. Um, but what's, so, so one of the core premises of this book is, is that most people they try to discover their personality so that they can then set goals based on their personality, right? You set goals and you get into relationships to like cater to your personality. Like it, that seems so like obvious. It's like, yeah, why would you do anything outside of your personality? Like that would be stupid. That'd be painful. And so people try to discover themselves so that they can then build their life around their personality. So rather, but, but I think far more truthful and far more powerful is rather than choosing goals based on your personality. It's a lot more powerful to, you know, base your personality on the goals that you have, which is essentially what your, your coach was saying, like, who, what do you want? And who's the person you have to be to get that? So like, that's like the whole be, do, have concept where it's like, you know, who do you have to be, which is probably different than who you've been in order to like have what you want, you know? So your personality should be based on your goals rather than having your goals be based on your current and very like temporary personality. Mm, I love this. And I'm so inspired to talk to you about trauma even further, because I think everybody knows here on this podcast, like after me having that course and that webinar, Ben, that we all know <laughs> enough about of me having thousands of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And millions of dollars and then losing a lot because the Facebook algorithm changed. I held on to, you know, yes, yes. Me with that one. Yeah. It's like I had an identity uh, around being successful and yes. I had an identity of money being like fucking water, you know, like I just, <laughs> like I, I made so much and I was so young that I, and I'd, I'd always grown up with, you know, a, my dad lost his business when I was a kid and I lost mine, you know? And so it was kind of one of those things where I got so used to thriving when it started. And then when everything fell down, I kind of felt like I was like a soldier, like in the hospital, you know, like I, I went, I worked so hard for that company and it took me pretty much until now, Ben, to really like, I've been playing a little bit smaller than what I'm capable of because I've been healing and uh, maybe that's a story. Maybe that's an identity. I'm the one who's healing. And that's why I'm not doing this, that, or the other thing. I mean, it's all made up. Everything's made up. I feel like you and I could just go so meta on this conversation, but I, I'm curious, like somebody like me who, or somebody who's listening, maybe they lost a relationship and they just feel like they're the one who is healing or processing or stuck or, you know, that was the past. And this is now it's like when I was super successful and I lost it all for a while, I kind of felt like that weird football quarterback you see at a high school reunion that like is still talking about the good old days, but like now he's like let go of his life and everything's kind of a mess. Do you know what I mean? 
what can you share for somebody who's gone through something that feels traumatic and they want to heal? How do they take those steps so that their personality isn't so frozen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a freaking beautiful question. And, um, the, you know, you, maybe you should just start reading chapter four of the book whenever I think hopefully we sent it to you. But so, so let me tell a quick story and then I'm going to explain some of the interesting science and interesting ideas around this and obviously provide some very practical ways to reframe trauma because we all go through trauma, even if, whether you lose a business, whether you, you know, had someone tell you you're ugly when you were five years old or like whether something even worse happened, you know, like some form of abuse. But, uh, let me first tell a funny story. So you you know who Buzz Aldrin is, right? He went. He was like one of the first astronauts on the moon with. Um, so he was like he was on the moon with Neil Armstrong. Like Buzz Aldrin was the second man to walk on the moon. They were there together. So Buzz Lightyear actually in Toy Story is named after Buzz. Oh, cool! <laughs> That's where, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so now you know where the name Buzz Lightyear comes from. Um, anyways, what's interesting about Buzz Aldrin, and this is really kind of an interesting concept. So so. He went to the moon, super successful guy. I think he was like 38 or something when he was like back on the moon, whenever, whenever that happened, like back in the like 71, like that now I'm embarrassed. might've been 68. So anyways, he makes it to the moon. He's like radically successful, radically famous. But what's interesting is, is like, seriously, immediately upon coming home from the moon, what the astronauts had to do is they had to do a three week quarantine just to like, make sure that they didn't bring any like space illnesses back or something weird. Um, but he immediately, when he got home from the moon, went into an extreme bender, like an alcohol bender. And, and, and it didn't stop. And like he ended up losing his marriage of 19 years, losing his career. Um, at his lowest point, he was like a used car salesman, literally in Beverly Hills, trying to sell Cadillacs, couldn't sell a car, was like an alcoholic and like got arrested because he tried to break down his like, you know, girlfriend's door because I don't know, he was in a drunken rage or whatever. And it kind of, he hit his low point and, and he ended up writing a biography about this. And, and basically he explained that it was so difficult for him to be that guy who was telling the story of who he was. Like he didn't want to be that guy who was the guy who went on the moon. Like his whole life was future focused, but now he was caught in this identity. Like he, he said he, there was no way he was ever going to be able to top what he did. Obviously this is different from you, but like he no, said. No, I like, think I felt that, you know, like, yeah, oh, yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've yeah, you're like, how the freak am I going to top my former self, right? But, like, um, like, so, like, he said it was just too painful. Like, and so what, what's interesting is, is Dan Sullivan talks a lot about, like, never let your, he says, he says, always make your future bigger than your past. But he also says, like, um, never make your status greater than your growth. Like, so one of the problems is, like, so, for example, with you, like, there was a status, like you had a status with the amount of money you were making, like also with like the notoriety, uh, who, whatever, whatever else perks came with who you were. Um, it can be really easy to get stuck in a status and the status then can actually get in the way of future growth. Uh, and people often hold on to former statuses, um, just because like it's, it's, it's like nostalgic and it's their way of like feeling good about themselves and it's all in the past. And so like, you, in a lot of ways, when you reconceptualize the future self, so like the NBA, like I'm a big NBA fan, and like the um, the guy who won the MVP last year, his name's like they call him the Greek Freak. Like his last name's hard to pronounce, but his name is Giannis, like Antetokounmpo or something like that. Anyways, he won the MVP last year, and he was getting interviewed recently, and like the ESPN analyst, her name is Rachel Nichols, but she was asking. Giannis, like, so tell us what it was like winning the MVP. You know, like, is it amazing that you won the MVP? Like, can you believe this? 
And he's like, yeah, it's interesting. It's cool. He's like, but honestly, I don't want to hear about it anymore. He's like, I don't really care about that. He's like, that's in the past. He's like, I'm focused on the next goal. He's like, so like, I don't really care about it. He's like, if I overly focus on what I've done, then like, I'm not, I'm going to get lazy. He's like, I don't, he's like, I just don't want to hear about it anymore. Like, he's, an, he's like, it's a great honor, but I, I really don't care. Um, and so I think that that's kind of a reflection of not being caught in the status and being more focused on growth. Um, and obviously people get stuck in identities of the past. Like I, myself, you know, for a long, long time, for like almost four years was like the top writer on medium. Like, and I could easily still like be that guy, but like, that's not me anymore. Like, it's not my goal. It's not my focus. It was a great situation, but like I could easily get stuck there. Just like anyone could get stuck in some successful like status. Right. Yep. Hey, U-Tuners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I want to make sure you know that this episode has been brought to you by the Career Clarity Lab, the online course to help you find your career purpose in the workforce and upgrade your confidence. So if you're ready to unlock the best career path for you and you'd like to try a free version of our Clarity course, just head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com slash Clarity. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash Clarity. Now let's get back to this week's episode. I feel like, what do you think, you're, you you kind of hit the nail on the head, obviously, as you do, with this idea of, like, people just talk about it because it makes them feel good, and it seems like there's this trend when you talk about personality, which it, I feel like everything comes back to this damn thing, which is worthiness. Like, what do you think the role is of self-esteem in us keeping trauma, you know, and, and keeping our personality so frozen and holding on to the past and who we like ourselves as versus who we actually want to be on in the future. Like, why are people so caught up in the past when they could just like me, you know, only recently have I been like, wow, everything is possible. And I, I've always believed that, but I hadn't played with that yeah. because I just felt like this wounded animal that like a stampede ran over is how it kind of felt. And I never wanted to identify as a victim, but I just felt like, man, that was really hard. And I'm not, I'm not down to do it again right now. I'm not down for the, I'm not down to put in the work for the upside right now. Um, no matter how much I love what I do. And so what do you think it is about self-esteem or the role it plays in all this? Well, let me, the self-esteem component, I'm not necessarily, I mean, self-esteem is fragile, but what you're saying is so, first off, honest, beautiful, lovely. I know it's like, it was tough. Um, I'll, I'll, let me explain trauma really quick and like explain how all this works because it's really, really uh, interesting what you're saying. So basically there's a few kind of key ideas to kind of pull together here. Like one is the idea of refractory period so a refractory period is basically the amount of time like in psychology terms it's the amount of time it takes to emotionally recover from an experience so as an example like in basketball i love basketball so i'll just use it again but like if someone shoots a shot and misses like and they like feel like a loser and like and so like they're caught in their head and like they can't get back on defense because they're they're worried about they're like ashamed they miss a shot the next time up they might not take the shot right because they're still focused on it so like you know, like it's, let's just say someone cuts you off on the road. Like you might be upset. I don't know, but like the refractory period may only be like five minutes, like hopefully not all day, (laughs) but like, it's the idea that like, it's, it's the idea that like, okay, you had an emotional reaction and then you recovered from it and you're just moving forward. And, and so for certain things like, you know, 
you have your emotions, they come up, they go down, you let them go. Like, and you can just move forward. And it's like, then you forget about it. But with various experiences, like the emotional reaction is intense. And sometimes the the refractory period can literally be years or decades where you haven't emotionally recovered from the experience. And so like there's, so in emotional, like in the emotional world, like there's, there's your primary emotions and your secondary emotions. So like primary emotions are like your initial reaction to an experience. So like super painful, like, like, and you're going through it. Like all of a sudden the ads aren't working and like things are plummeting. Your identity is getting shattered and like you're embarrassed. I don't know. There's so many things there that are involved in this initial reaction. And first off, it's important to be open and honest about your initial reaction and to not be embarrassed. Like there's no shame in the initial reaction. Um, like it just is what it is. The challenge then becomes if you don't, you know, if you're not intentional about the secondary emotions and that, that aspect of it's called emotional regulation. And, and there's, there's key, there's, there's keys to actually recovering quicker. Like the idea is, is that you want your memory to be short when it comes to short, you know, to traumatic things. Like if you're still experiencing something that happened to you years or decades ago, then you haven't gone through the emotional cycle of reframing it and turning it into something that's useful. Like the past, the past should be information, not emotion. Like it should be very much high quality information, which you can use to make better decisions in the future. But if it's still emotional, what that means is, is that you're still caught in the trauma and you're still, you're still viewing the experience from the perspective of your initial reaction, not your reframed reaction. And so as a result, your personality and your emotional development as a person and even your flexibility is, is, is really caught and limited back to where, whenever the event happened. And so there's, there's key ways yeah. obviously to quickly reframe to shift your perspective. I mean, there's very effective ways to, and even just ways to becoming more flexible as you go through big growth in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love what you're sharing because of course I'm about to ask you about like effective ways. Sure, to of create- course, of course. Yeah. We can go wherever you want. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but it's, it's, it's so true. This idea of a refractory period. And I guess what I am curious about is like, is there such a thing as, you know, a 10 year ref- with, with yes. what's the tipping where you're not sometimes, some of them, some of them never end, you know, like it's up, it's up to the person, you know, but the idea is, is like, if something, you know, so the idea is, is like, if something is lasting for a few days, like, you know, initially it goes from like a mo- an emotion to a mood, you know, and like, you know, you might be in a bad mood for like a week, you know, but like, eventually it becomes a personality type, right? Like not type, sorry, it becomes like a personality trait or characteristic. Um, An identity, you know, know, if you're very much about it. Yeah. Well, I think about my dad a lot because he's like one of my favorite people. He's such a little ham and he's so (laughs) alive. He's such a character, you know, but he, he hasn't gotten over so many different things. Like my, his, he lost his business in the eighties and like, even when I'm in around people, like it's not unusual for him to talk about Bring his journey. Up. Yeah. And, and, and then when my sister passed away, like a couple of years ago, um, which I can't believe it's been a couple of years, I had number one processed so many things about her life that, you know, when I was able to move on, you know, and I of course miss my sister, but he, I would be like, dad, maybe you should talk to somebody about this. And he's like, no, I'm fine. But then at the funeral, he would repeat the same thing and sit down and have this like long storytelling vibe, you know, to like 
because he was processing it, you know, with people. And so I also, I don't know, I feel like I have a message for everybody listening around responsibility. It's like, yeah, there's a refractory period, but when you stay hostage in your old identity, it's like everybody else has to kind of come along with you, you know, which doesn't have to be, I mean, I'm not, I think for my dad, I have a lot of space and so I don't mind it. But with, I think a lot of people, they might not have that kind of space to to hold for somebody's old story about back in the days when they were the quarterback of the football team. And now they're at the high school reunion, you know, looking unhealthy and looking like a mess, whatever. And so what are some ways that people can get started with lasting change? Cause for me, I've been changing and I'm not really sure what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but something has shifted for me and I am earning more and making more impact even during the coronavirus, which has been such a scary and sad thing to watch so many people in our society go through. It's like, I have more business opportunities that have, that have been coming to me lately than ever. So I don't know what I did. You know what I mean? But something changed. Cause I was stuck for a while and stuck for me is, is a privilege. Like I, I'm so grateful I could support myself and do what I love to keep my business going but I know that that's not the case for everybody. So yeah, could you give us some steps or some insights on how to start that change? Yeah, there's lots. There's lots of really powerful things that we can do. And one thing just about your dad, and you know, my dad's to some degree similar as well. It's not like something has like a built-in refractory period. Like it's very much up to the individual how fast or slow that goes. Like one thing that Kobe Bryant used to say, and I loved it, but this is not just Kobe that says it. Like Kobe said he had a very short memory. So like, for example, he missed a lot of shots, right? But he'd keep shooting because he just didn't care about like the failures in the past. Like he was very much focused on the goal. Like, and so like shortening the memory is a key thing because like memory is fluid. Memory is flexible. Like, so like the, the Covey quote that I've said a few times, which is really crucial is like, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. The same is true of your past. Like you, the world, you don't see the past as it is. You see the past as you currently are. Um, if you still see the past or episodes of the past the same way, what that means is that you haven't actually recontextualized or, or actually like reframed it. You're still seeing it from the perspective of like the you four or five years ago or the you back in the eighties. Like you're still, you haven't reframed the context. Um, so let me like tell a quick story on context and then I'm going to explain how you can reframe your memories and also your narrative. Cause obviously the narrative of your past needs to change. Um, and, and, and it is something within your control. Like the past actually should be something that happened for you, not to you. Like if it happened for you, then you can use it. It's positive. Like your father losing that business. If it happened for him, he could have taken that and built a better business or made better decisions. Right. But like, it's still happening to him. Like it's still some episode that occurred to him. Like, and so he's still the victim of, of the incident or the event. Um, right. And so like he's still viewing the past from that lens versus viewing the past as information which he can use to make better decisions. Um, so here's a quick story on context just so that people understand this because this is so crucial and it's something that we kind of miss. Uh, so this is just a funny story about my mother-in-law and it happened like two weeks ago, but it really kind of paints, it kind of, paints, it kind of paints the picture and, and the picture needs to be painted. Um, <laughs> so she was working out in the gym, you know, just kind of doing her thing. And there was a, you know, to be sensitive, there was a very overweight woman in the gym. Like I'm talking very overweight and she was wearing very tightly fitted gym clothing. And, and, and my mother-in-law could tell that it was quite awkward for some of the people, maybe even like, People were being judgmental towards this woman. You know, it's just like maybe not something you see every day. Well, 
they ended up working out next to each other. They were working out on these machines next to each other. My mother-in-law started talking to this woman, and she found out that in the last several months, this woman has actually lost 150 pounds. Hmm. So, like, question for you. Do you think my mother-in-law's perspective at all changed with that information? Yeah, wow. Like, how so? How do you think, I mean, if you found that out, like, (laughs) how would your perspective of this woman potentially change? Gosh, I mean, respect, you know what I mean? Yeah, huge. Like, my mother-in-law went from potentially, you know, a little bit judgmental, you know, critical to, like, yeah, huge respect, huge inspiration, like, holy cow, like, someone who's lost 150 pounds, like, you know, like, you have, like, confidence that this woman's going places, like, right? Like, anyway, this is an example of how context matters way more than content. Um, like. You're not, you're looking at the same woman, but now with this new information, you have a totally different perspective of this woman. Like, so Wayne, Wayne Dyer said, we don't, you know, when you change the way you see things, the things you see change. Um, and so like, again, this is one of the reasons why personality tests are really kind of, they're kind of elementary psychology because you, you get a score and you think it's always true and it fundamentally ignores context, you know, like in a different context, you're going to be a different person, but you think like, I'm always an INFJ, which is really like an elementary way of looking at people. But, um, so like back to, back to the past, like if something happens to you, you're viewing the content, right? Like you're viewing what happened. Like I lost my job or like Facebook changed or whatever it is. You're focused on, on the content, not the context. And also like when, when you, when you begin to expand your view of the context, it changes how you view about the thing. So, like, I'll give an example of myself. Like, my father, when I grew up, my parents got divorced when I was 11. My father became, like, an intense drug addict. Um, and it just, it just drove him to a really dark place. And this is, like, me at age 11. All of a sudden, my parents get divorced, which is traumatic enough. Second off, like, my father becomes some extreme drug addict. Like, there's zero stability in my life for the next eight years. And, and um, you know... When an event occurs or when stuff happens, that's where we form narratives. So you have a narrative around the Facebook thing. And, and, and any time you have an emotional experience, there, there's a narrative that comes with it. That, that, that narrative is the thing you actually need to reframe. Because when you change that, you can change the emotions around it. Um, mm-hmm. like, if, like just as one example, there's a lot of research on like what's called math trauma. Like a lot of people have had math trauma. Basically, math trauma is the, you know, the idea that you can't do math because at some point or another, maybe you failed a test or you had a teacher tell you you're bad. But like at some point or another, a lot of high school kids or junior high kids, they have a tough experience in math. And they then what 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 like the research on trauma shows is that it shatters imagination. And so like if you don't and it kills hope and confidence, obviously. And so like if you if you have a bad experience and then you form a narrative. Uh, which is basically called a cognitive commitment, but it's like, oh, I can't do this anymore. If you, if you, if that's the new narrative, then like you're not going to have any imagination or confidence towards the thing. You're not going to try it anymore. You're going to avoid it. And like, if you do try it, you're going to be rigid toward it. Cause like, that's like the whole idea of trauma is you become emotionally rigid towards this thing. Whereas learning requires like emotional and psychological flexibility. Um, and so um, like, so like when you, but so going back to my dad, like, Fast forward, you know, to this point, he's actually like, even when I was like in my early twenties, he actually like got out of the addiction. Like he ended up actually serving people like as an addiction recovery counselor. But 
in better understanding my own past, in better reframing my own narrative around like that period of time, I had to ask my dad questions. You know, you may not have access, for example, like, you know, whoever's listening to this, like the people around the scenario might be dead, but maybe you can ask different questions or get different information. But in my case, my dad was alive, so I could ask him questions. And I, I just want to know, like, what, what led him to doing what he did? Like, what, what led him down that path? What, you know, and, and, and also, like, what was it like, you know, to have his kids, like, leave him, abandon him and stuff like that? And, and, also, and by the way, we're just great friends now. Um, and in getting his perspectives, I had an insane amount of empathy and compassion towards the situation and a lot of understanding, you know. And, and that allowed me to, re, like, n- realize, obviously, he wasn't trying to hurt me and my brothers. Like, he was going through a lot of stuff. And, like, I'm not saying I would have done the same thing, but, like, I, maybe I would have. Like, when you can understand someone else's context you stop being so judgmental, you know, like, it's kind of like the idea, like if someone cuts you off on the road, but you find out that like, they're rushing to the hospital to get their kid. Like, once you understand the context, you're like, Oh, like, I don't need to be mad at this person anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, totally. And, and, and I, I also was just thinking about like math trauma and shattering imagination. So let's say somebody like me, you know, like I've got that cognitive commitment is what you said around like, please forget And I feel like coming up now, it's like, I have so many funnels and courses that I love and that really stand the test of time content on how to figure out what you want to do with your career, how to get a job offer. And it's just sitting sitting there and it's like a lot of people buy it when they just find it, but I'm not really marketing it. And I just started playing with marketing. And every time I open the Facebook dashboard, I can feel like that, that frenemy inside of me, you know, it's like, Oh, hello, darkness, my old friend, you know, like Simon and Garfunkel feels like it's playing. And I've just started to kind of overcome it where I open it and I'm like, Oh wow, this is a vehicle of possibility. What can I make happen here? What do you, what do you think is one or two steps that may have happened in my mind that got me to that friendliness with something that used to feel so painful? Yeah. Well, there's a few things I think. One is, for some reason or another, your future self is still someone who does this, and you're getting back to that. You're reconnecting with who you want to be, whereas, like, Mm -hmm. after that event happened, like, the confidence, the imagination shattered, and obviously when those things shatter, the future disappears, (laughs) and the past becomes all that matters. And so I think you've gone through enough time and you've probably had enough conversations and maybe enough journaling or whatever you do thinking about it to, to realize like, okay, I've got to, I've got to move on. Like I need to move, I get, I need to get moving forward again. Um, you know, and, and you can obviously speed that you can, sometimes it's hard. And I think a lot of it potentially is ego, but like, there's a really good quote that says trauma isn't what happens to you. It's what you hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. And so like, I think you've probably had enough conversation, but now I think what you're doing is you're starting to get committed to a future again. And so like, and so as a result, like, and so in psychology, one other thing is called exposure therapy. So like, obviously there's painful emotions attached to this thing that used to be a big part of your identity, but you're exposing yourself to it. Like before you avoided it for a long time, like you put your your forces on the shelf, you stopped doing it. It would be equivalent to like Kobe Bryant stopped shooting the ball. Um, And so like now, like you're like, okay, I'm going to shoot again. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, test this out again. Like my confidence is a little bit shattered, but I'm going to start shooting again. Like, and so I think it, it, it's a combination of exposing yourself to it enough. Cause if you expose yourself to something enough, like it's like, 
it, the novelty wears off or like the emotion wears off and it just becomes something you can, you can do again. You know, like mm-hmm. you kind of have to rebuild that muscle, like which you did in the beginning, in the beginning, you weren't as expert as you were when you got to your climax, you know, but like you, you forgot about that. Like, cause you were so high up there, like with what you were accomplishing that like, you forgot that actually in the beginning, maybe it wasn't that easy. And that you had to work through that. Like now you get to do that again, but maybe with a slightly different goal. And so mm-hmm. I think approaching it again and maybe reconceptualizing your future and maybe re- letting go finally of what happened so that you can like actually move forward. And so, I mean, there's a few key things that I think not only can be helpful, but also are helpful. So like one is obviously taking the time to actually now at this point, wherever you are, and given what you've gone through, you have a totally different perspective. You're going to actually approach, you're going to actually have different priorities, different goals. You now have a boyfriend, like you're going to have a dog, like, you know, like you're in a different situation than you, when, than the person who made that course, like you have a different perspective or in a different world, like you're going to actually set different goals. And so like, first things first, like, who do you want to be? Second thing, second, start telling everyone that that's who you're going to be. Like when it's really important, first off to tell, to first off, conceptualize your future identity. Mm -hmm. But then it's really important that that becomes your new narrative. Because when you start telling people where you're going, you, you're first off being more honest. Um, People are afraid to be honest about what they actually want and then to tell people that's what we're going to do. But when you actually start telling people that that's what you're going to do, then they can actually notice the change as it's happening. Like, they can actually watch you as you start shooting out ads again. Like, and it's okay if they're not perfect over time, over a year, they're going to start getting better and better. And like, so as you tell people what you're going to do, they'll actually be able to measure the change that's occurring. If you don't, their, their selective attention is going to be that they're going to keep seeing you the same way because they're not going to notice all that you're doing. You know, you're not the center of their universe, but also the other crucial thing for you and for me and for everyone listening to this is to reframe your story about what happened to you on the Facebook ads. Like this is, I don't think something your dad has actually done yet, but like, I think you need to reframe the story and you need, and I don't know like what you need to do. Uh, I mean, you actually, there's a few things you could do, but you need to, you need to think about what are the most effective ways that you could, you could look at this Facebook experience. Like how would your future self be this experience? Like thinking like, did you actually do anything wrong or did the internet just change? Like, you know, like how, how do you want to explain this story um, based on who you want to be? Like based on where your future self's going to be, like how are they going to tell this story? Like, yes, this thing happened, but what did it lead to? And like, you know, like basically you get to choose how you frame and explain this story to others in the future, but I would tell the Facebook story in a more powerful way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's like really thinking about like what you got from it and then who you want to be because of it and making sure you share with pe- that with people. What is it about sharing it with people, Ben, that changes it or does something? Well, it's interesting. There's like a concept called the observer effect. The observer effect is like the idea that you can't look at something without changing it. That's also true of memory. Um, but like, if you start telling, well, maybe you've heard the quote, you're as sick as your secrets, <laughs> but, uh, that's an Alcoholics Anonymous quote. But if you don't share your trauma with other people, then it's going to be secretive and it's going to lead to unhealthy coping behavior, like, you know, addiction, et cetera, like anything to numb the pain because you need to tell people about it. Like, that's just an aspect of being honest. But then you need to become, you know, you get to choose how you frame it, how you storytell it, like how you explain it and how you even remember it over time. Um, and so you don't want things to be secret. Um that doesn't mean you have to go and tell everyone about the trauma, but you, when you, when you do talk about your past, 
hopefully at this point or in the future, it's going to be such that like when you rebuild your confidence and your flexibility and when you're moving forward, and even when you have a sense of gratitude, when you're feeling joyful, like when you're actually moving again as a person and you're already doing that, you'll start to like feel peace again. Like you'll stop being so defined by what happened and you'll then start to like get back to your future. And then you'll start to be able to be like, you know what, that was something that was tough to happen, but like, you know what, that's not me anymore. Or like, I'm glad that's over. And I learned a lot from that and I'm stoked about where I'm going. And you know, like you can just, you can, you get to choose how you explain it. Mm, I love this, Ben. This has been such a helpful interview. I guess I'm curious, like, what should I have asked you that I didn't think of because you're just full of so much good information. No, I mean, there's a lot in the book. Um, obviously like the role of environment, like the role of un- unconscious and how to update that. But, um, no, I mean, I think we, I think we had a blast and, uh, yeah, you know, I, so I, 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 what I love about talking to you is just how, how down to earth the conversations always are. Like, you know, oh, to be honest, well, to be honest with you, like, you know, not to the dramatic extent that you experienced, but like, I remember when medium.com changed, it had changed in 2018 and like they, they changed everything. Um, where it was like, you could no longer like market on the platform. So like I went from getting 20,000 emails a month to like none, you know, I'm and like, it was like, Whoa. Um, but like, that's yeah. a, it's like a huge identity challenge. Uh, yeah. Um, luckily for me at that point, I was already like deep into books, you know? And like, and, but like, one thing that's like really helpful. Well, it was one thing, it, the thing that kind of, it kind of freaked me out. Cause I was like, wow, like what's going to happen next. Um, but like, I'm, I'm really big on future self as the, like, as the, like as the destination and then the goals as the way to get there. And like you, you learned a lot by being hyper successful back in like back in what, whatever led you to getting here. Like you, you've got a lot of knowledge and skills and even resources. Like you've got a lot out of becoming successful at the Facebook world that you did in the past. Like you've got this, like this um, network, you've got all this knowledge on business. Like you, like there's so many, like that's one of the big things is like seeing all of the benefits that came from that experience rather than just focusing on how it ended, you know, but like you're in a different situation now to set better goals and the process that you're going to have to go through to get your new goals is going to be different. It's kind of like the whole, what got you here won't get you there. In this case, yeah. it may be Facebook, but maybe you're marketing different products. I don't know. For me, it's not medium anymore. Like my goals don't require that platform. Like at this point, like my goal, like that, that like what got me here won't get me there. And like that platform as it is, isn't attractive to me anymore. Like, yes, it was good, but like my goals in my future require a new process. And so now I have mm-hmm. to like, First, you set the new identity. Who do I want to be? Then you determine the goal, which is like, how do I become that person? You know, what outcome needs to be true? But then, then third, you've got to like find the process. You got to reverse engineer how to create the goal because that process is how you go through the transformation of becoming who you want to be. And so me, it's like, it's not blogging anymore. Like blogging got me a cool email list and like, I'll get back to blogging, but like, now it's like, how do I sell millions of copies of books? And like, that's a very different process than yeah. email subscribers. And so like, so now my process is different and it's okay to let that former self go, let go of that former status. Yeah. Well, and it's also just feedback to remember, like you're the common denominator who created the success in the first place. You're the well, you're the spring that created you that. Did it so- once, you can do it again, right? 
Yeah. Well, that, you know, that comment, by the way, Ben, that kind of fucked me for a while because it's true, but it made me, I, I, I got into this victim place of like, if I can do it once, I should be able to do it again. So why can't I do it again? I keep trying and it's not working. And I think it comes back to everything we're actually talking about where it's like, because that was my old self and I'm, that's not you. Yeah. Yeah. I was was thinking the actually, actually the same thing when you were saying that is like, the old you did it. The new you won't do it that way. That doesn't mean you can't take, take stuff from your old self. Like you can take stuff from your old self, but you know, at the same time, your new self is going to be different. Yeah, I could totally use all of your research to like mess around with my boyfriend. I feel like he could be like, "You said you were going to do that." I'm like, "That's my old self, my new self." <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben. Where can everybody find you? And I know your book is coming out in June, um, and I, we're going to make sure to air this right around then. So tell me a little bit more about like where can everybody find you, learn from you? Yes. So BenjaminHardy.com is the website. And personality isn't permanent is a book you can buy practically anywhere, Audible, etc. You know, um, Barnes and Noble. If you buy the book, go to benjaminhari.com. There's lots of cool goodies that you can get by just plugging in your info, and we'll give you lots of cool online courses and just amazing gifts. But the book will rock your world. Um, this book is there's a lot of there's a lot of things in this book that you won't find in a typical self help. Let's just say that. Oh. I can't wait. I'm going to get started on it like now. I feel like by the time this airs, I'll have read it a couple times with notes all over as I complete this old identity. So thanks again for being you doing this work. You always have conversations with me that I'm not hearing elsewhere. And it's like, it refreshes me and gives me so much creativity. I know it's going to do the same for everybody listening. Well, it was my pleasure. Hey guys, it's Ash here. I am just reflecting on the episode with Ben Hardy and he is such a dear friend and I have a lot of um, reverence for his brain and the way he sees the world and the amount of research he pours into his conclusions. And, you know, I remember when I met Ben, I knew he would really make something of himself in the world as, you know, and he already was. And I'm just so proud of his book, Personality Isn't Permanent. So excited to read it and so excited for you to also read it as well as his book, Willpower Doesn't Work. And one of the biggest things that rocked me in the episode was him talking about how personality tests can be quite damaging. And um, it really brought up this thought for me of how do you use what's helpful and not buy in or give in or become all of these different theories that tell us that labels damage us. And um, what I have kind of come to as a conclusion is to look at everything, every label, personality test, whatever, as something to hold lightly, something to see and resonate with, take what you will, leave what you don't. When I went to University of Santa Monica, spiritual psychology program, there was a lot about the program and the group that resonated. And there were some things that really didn't. And there are some moments in the program where people were spiritually going through an experience that I just genuinely couldn't understand and couldn't wrap my head around. And on my worst day, my ego would probably judge it and say, they're, you know, they're too out there or whatever. And then on my best day, I would be curious and think like, wow, what are they going through? I don't really understand. And so my invitation to you is 
you know, I love personality tests. I can't help but take them, but to hold them lightly, hold them as a resource and hold them with the mindset that you get to reflect on them and decide what you're going to carry with you and what you're going to leave behind. Um, I think that the research behind identity continues to be really interesting one of my favorite episodes I also did on this topic was with Tatiana Ray about how to set yourself free. And she talks a lot about how we're all these little Mr. Potato Heads that are putting little pieces together and choosing who we are and buying into our image. And uh, I think all of us choose a different image or choose a different label because there's some sort of payoff for it. And so my my curiosity for you is what what is the label that you're buying into about yourself right now? Who are you really sold on that you are? Like what what belief do you have that is starting to feel a little bit fixed about who you are, what you do in the world or, or not? And why, why are you holding on to that? And if you decided to let go of whatever that label was, what else would you choose? Or even better, if you could choose any label at all, if one, if you could just play and pick something that felt fun, who would you like to be? I think, you know, as Ben Hardy says, when it comes to setting goals, we have to think about the person who can set those goals or the person who can reach those goals. And uh, sometimes I think identity gets in the way of us really choosing who we want to be. And so I, I just want to remind you that's always available. I hope you love this episode. I freaking love Ben. I hope you read his book and I can't wait for next week. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. We keep really detailed show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. So if our guest mentioned a book or a resource that you're interested in, you'll be able to find that there. In the meantime, if you were inspired by this episode, if it made an impact in your life, we would be so grateful if you subscribed and posted a review for us on iTunes. Rumor has it on the street, the more reviews we get, the more subscribes we get, the more we can grow and get our impact out there in the world. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you at Ashley Stahl on Instagram. I'm so grateful for connecting and I look forward to next week's episode.